Well, pray with me one more time, and then we're going to dive uh, back into the book of Titus today. We're continuing um, our study through Titus, and we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, uh, looking at verses 9 and 10. And, and I think there's some, some uh, difficulties about this passage. There's some twists and turns to it. I think it make it heavy and hard. And so uh, we're going to dive in uh, here in a moment, but let me just pray for our hearts to receive God's Word today. Father God, we, just, uh, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that we're not left in the dark, that, that we're unsure, almost like the um, uh, astrologers where we're just kind of trying to decipher some sort of cosmic meaning that frankly ends up being silly. But Lord, that we, we know with clarity what you want for us. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to look within to find truth, but we, we can look outside of ourselves to find truth that it's clear, that it's plain. We just thank you for your word. Lord, in this Christmas season, we, we know that your word is connected with your presence, that you have come and come down and, and, and dwelt with us. And so, Lord, in, in this moment, it's a, it's a very Christmas moment where your presence and your word are coming together. And to that end, we just invite your spirit to fill this room, for him to do the work that only he can do of, of giving us eyes to see, to, to calling us to repentance, to convicting us where we need conviction, to encourage us where we need it. Spirit, come and do your work in these next moments. Lord, Lord I, I pray for all of us that we would just set aside distractions now and just lock in and focus on your word and how we need to be transformed by it. Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. A number of years ago, I was uh, invited with a group of pastors to see what was then the, the newly opened Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And I, I, I love museums. I love the Bible. I didn't pray about it. I didn't look at my calendar. I just said yes to the invitation and, and went with this group of pastors. And if you're ever in Washington, D.C., it's a must-see. You, you really have to go see the Museum of the Bible. It's amazing. And in our group, we were, we were given our own little tour guide, and, and I just soaked everything up. I mean, I mean, I loved every moment of it. There was a section where uh, we saw how monks and scribes would, would uh, transcribe text. They, they had a rabbi there uh, transcribing the, the Hebrew Bible. We saw uh, Bibles in different types of languages. At one point, um, I put on these virtual reality goggles, and, and I was just seeing images of the Holy Land, and, and I admit that I'm, I'm tearing up watching this tears are coming out of my goggle it was just I was just moved by all of it but but one bible in particular and one comment about that bible really stopped me in my tracks and, and probably the best way to describe it is really ever since then it, it's kind of haunted me at, at one exhibit next to the near, near the Jefferson bible you know what the Jeff the Thomas Jefferson bible is right it's where he went through and, and he literally cut out all the miraculous things out of the Bible. That's a sign that you're probably not a Christian if you do that, okay? Near that Bible was the slave Bible. And let me tell you what the slave Bible was. It was a Bible that was given by uh, slavers to slaves, but, but there was one omission from it. that They took out the book of Exodus. Like, let that sit for a second. Here are these men who claimed to be Christians, who owned other people, gave them the Bible, yet they removed the book of Exodus. What's Exodus about? Like they didn't want them to know that 
that, that God had, God's people had been in slavery. And as part of God's broader redemptive plan, that he had worked all these miraculous things to bring his people out of slavery. Like, they didn't want the slaves to ponder what all that meant for them. As awful as that was to learn that that, that was even a thing, I, I didn't even know that was a reality, that there were Christians who had, who had ripped out the book of Exodus and, and then given it to slaves. There, there was one pastor who made a comment that has haunted me ever since. And one, there were a couple of pastors on, in the group who were African-American. And this one African-American pastor had, had a real aha moment when he saw the slave Bible. He, he said, you know, I've heard for years from older African-American saints that you can't trust the Bible because white people put it together. He said, now, when I went to seminary and I learned all about textual criticism, I, I would explain to them, no, no, that, that's not the case. This is, this is the process of how the Bible was put together. It, it, it wasn't a bunch of white people who put it together. They didn't have some agenda behind it. You can trust God's word. But then he said, honestly, I, I've always thought it was, it was kind of silly that, that they had that comment. I didn't, I didn't know where it came from. But he said, after seeing the slave Bible today, I can see how many African-Americans have struggled to trust even the Bible. Isn't that awful? Think about that. For generations, slaves and descendants of slaves in this country have struggled to trust God's word because of what some white Christians had done to God's word. Isn't that amazing? Listen, injustices like that make Titus 2, 9 to 10, a difficult passage for us to follow. Today, like I said, we're returning to our, our study of the book of Titus. And Titus is one of the, the pastoral epistles. So, so it's, a, it's a book uh, about ministry for ministers. And we've said that the theme of the book of Titus is this call to be devoted to good doctrine and good deeds. And, and we're at this portion of the book where he's applying it to different uh, groups within the church. So he's applied it to, to men, and he's called men to disciple the, the younger men. And we were in a section a couple of weeks ago where he focused on the ladies, and he called older ladies to disciple the younger ladies. And now he's looking at a third group in the church. He's looking at bond servants. Now, your translation might call them slaves or it might call them servants, but the technical term is bond servants, and, and that's a good term, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But, but what he's saying here is that he is calling the bondservants to be devoted to good doctrine and to good deeds. In other words, this is uh, how bondservants were to, verse 10, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So if you were a bondservant in the ancient world, if you were on the island of Crete and you were a bondservant, this was kind of your instruction manual. This is how you were to do it faithfully. This is how you were to be a faithful bondservant uh, in, in, in the world that you were living in. In short, God's word called the bondservants to be submissive. Now, that's difficult on a couple of fronts, right? Be submissive. It's difficult because our own fleshly desires don't want to be submissive. I don't want to be submissive to anyone about anything. And that's, that's because of my fleshly desires. But also, this is difficult on another front because there's all these these philosophical views of the world that, that are in response to injustices in the world that call us not to be submissive, but to rebel. And in fact, we romanticize rebellion, don't we? Like we're Americans. You, you tax us on our tea, boy, right? Like, like we wear shirts with Che Guevara on it, who is a murderer and an awful human being, but we romanticize that. 
So there's all these views of the world where we romanticize rebellion and we reject submission. But in Titus 2, 9 and 10, he's going he's to call us through a series of, of admonitions to be submissive. The, the overarching admonition or charge here in, in these two verses is to be submissive. And you might say, well, how do I be submissive? He's going to give you a, a two tests to see if you're actually submissive. And, and then what he's going to, where he's going to land is he's going to give you purpose in your submission. He's going to say, listen, your work matters. Bond servants on the island of Crete, your submission to your masters mattered. And, and listen, employee, worker today, your submission matters. There's purpose to it. However, before we get there, because we're Americans, and because we have the history that we have, we need to take a second to understand the ethics of slavery and servitude. We just need to walk through history. We need to ask some questions before we can even actually get to this text. Because Titus 2, 9 and 10, it's going to call bond servants to be submissive in order to adorn the doctrine of God. But, but we need to understand what bond servants are before we dive uh, too deep into the text. Now, uh, in, in the English Bibles, this is a translation of the Greek term doulos. And doulos, in most translations, is translated as bond servants. Now, maybe your translation says slave, or maybe it says servant. Now, we're Americans, and we know our history, and so your antennas come up there, right? You know that there's a difference between a slave and a servant, Right? Like there's a difference between 1850s Alabama and Texas and, and Downton Abbey, right? There's a difference there. Bond servant is maybe something in the middle of that. And so I think bond servant is a really good term here because it gets to kind of the complexities of, of the categories here. Technically, in most cases, bond servants were people who willingly accepted bonded servitude. They did it for a period of time, and then it ended. Typically, it was 7 to 14 years, and then it ended. And typically, they did it in order to pay off debts. So you could say, in, in some ways, that there was a grace to this institution because it was impoverished people that had nowhere to turn, and so they would give themselves to bonded servitude in order to pay off debt. And many times what it looked like that at the end of their servitude, they were then given money to, to pay off their debt, kind of back pay, if you will. However, many of them unwillingly were put into this type of servitude, Okay. And this happened, maybe they, were, maybe they were captured in battle. Maybe they were a child of a slave. And, and sometimes there was examples where this was punishment for a crime. Instead of going to jail, you, you, you became a bond servant. So, so there's similarities to the bond servants and the old American uh, South uh, slaves. But, but there's also differences from it. And, and one of the, the key differences is, is there wasn't a racial component to bond servants, Okay. In, in the old American South, it was, it was connected to race. And, and so there was this evil in that because it was communicating that, that people who were part of this race, they were somehow lesser human beings. But bondservant was a different institution in that it wasn't connected to race. However, just to be overly clear, being a bondservant was a bitter pill to swallow. No one said, I want to be a bondservant. Okay, they're in an, an unjust institution here. This is not something that they want to do. Now, because of the parallels to American slavery, 
I think this passage forces us to ask some questions. I want to ask four questions and answer four questions before we dive into our text. Number one, is the Bible supportive of the institution of slavery? That's a pretty important question if your ancestors were slaves, right? Now, if not, number two, why did God not clearly demand an end of slavery in the Bible? I think that's a very important question, too, if you're if your ancestors were enslaved. Number three, was it biblical to work for and fight for the end of slavery? And then number four, should we concern ourselves with improving the quality of life of workers? So let me take each of those questions in turn. Number one, is the Bible supportive of the institute, institution of slavery? No. Let me give, let me give just three stops uh, along the journey of, of redemption to make the case of why the Bible is not supportive of the institution of slavery. It existed in the Bible, but that doesn't mean God was supportive of it. Number one is the Imago Dei. We're all created equally in the image of God, right? And, and that's the ground of human dignity. This is just 101 Christian and biblical ethics, is that you are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. So you have the same worth and dignity as, as every other person. So, so any sort of, of system or structure that abuses or oppresses or, or treats people somehow as less than than other people, it goes directly against the Imago Dei. So slavery in the American South went uh, directly against that. And so it was sinful and it was wrong. Number two is Israel. When you look at the laws in Israel, Israel was very different from the nations around it. They had this kind of bonded servitude category, but their treatment of people in that category was very different than the nations around them. There was always a way out of it. It was always a step towards getting you know, out of a lower class situation, being impoverished, and being able to step out of that. The third category, of course, is Exodus. If God was supportive of slavery, why did he bring his entire people out of slavery into the promised land? However, at times throughout history, servitude was this gracious institution in the sense that it gave people who had no options an option. However, servants should have been treated fairly. Their contracts of when it was supposed to end, they should have been honored. And the key difference between slavery and servitude was that slavery was forced upon people. They didn't accept it willingly, and there was no end to it. So a biblical case can be made for some forms of servitude, but not for slavery. So that leads to the second question. Then why did God not clearly demand an end of slavery in the Bible? I don't know. I wish he did. I wish it was clearer than that. And that's easy, I think, being in 2023, looking back at the ancient world and saying, why didn't God just speak clearly to this? Why was there not an entire book in the Bible that was all about ending slavery and then how to do it? I don't know. And I think we have to come at that carefully, and I think we have to come at that as modern people in a humble way. Like the Bible doesn't chase the ups and downs of of kind of the, the headlines of today and the, and the political ups and downs. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says it this way, that expressing the right feelings and signing up for the right causes are less important than growing in Christ-like character. I, I think he gets at something important for us there, that, that God's focus in your life is to see you converted and, and then grow in your Christ-likeness. And, and so there's all these other issues that spin around us that the Bible maybe 
on, on the fringe has some sort of ethical statement to it. Sometimes it speaks to things very clearly, but sometimes it just doesn't speak to certain things. And it's not that they're unimportant. It's just that your eternity is more important. And so like every generation, our generation needs humility when judging the past, when judging others, and especially judging God in the Bible. The reality is, is that Paul was not going to be able to end the institution of slavery. At the writing of the New Testament, the church was this very fringe, strange religious organization. It had no influence in society, okay? And, and so the best Paul could do was he could encourage Christians within slavery to find hope and happiness in the Lord. And that, that's what he's trying to do here. And, and he could also uh, encourage Christians who own bond servants and slaves to treat them better because of the gospel. The reality of it was is he just wasn't going to be able to end slavery. But what he could do is he could help people navigate through it in better ways. And there's also, we have to be, I think, very clear on this point. The reality of it is, is that slavery in the New Testament was more just than what was experienced in the American South. There was just layers of wickedness in the American South that, 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 that is it's just not done in this institution of the bond service. You see that? There's not a racial component. There's an end to it. There's, for most of them, a willingness to step into it. That wasn't the case in the American South. So number three, then if all that's true, was it biblical to work for and fight for the end of slavery? Yes. Yes, it was. Historical hypotheticals are kind of a trap. But in our last lecture with the seminary group, I asked the question, okay, if you lived in America in 1859, you could vote, would it have been a sin for you not to vote for Abraham Lincoln? Think about that for a second. Now, by the way, there were actually four people running, not just two. But, but here you had a candidate. Nobody knew who he was. Kind of weird looking. But his whole, he was representing a political party that was formed to end slavery. His animating issue was to end slavery. It was the great evil of the day. That's why he was running. I would argue that if Christians didn't vote for him, they were probably in sin. Are you tracking with me? So, so I think what the abolitionists did was virtuous and right. Okay, I think what they did was right. And further, I think the way they did it was right. Okay, this wasn't a one-and-done thing. Like, they wrote books about it. They debated this. They gave speeches about it. They informed an entire political party in order to end it. Okay, they went about it the right way. However, if you're an African-American, it is true that white Christians held your ancestors in slavery, including manipulating the Bible, including manipulating the Bible for them, and viewing them sinfully as less than. That's true. And if you're an African-American, for many African-Americans, that, that haunts them. There's seeds of that that come into today. But if you're an African-American, I want you to hear something as well. That, and there were actually more of them on this. There were more white Christian people in this country that when shots started being fired, they took up arms and died in order to help free your ancestors from slavery. Both of those things are true. And, and, and we need to be abundantly clear as Christians, the abolitionist movement was a Christian movement, distinctively. If you read those books, if you read those speeches, this was a Christian movement. Both of those things happened at the same time. 
But number four, should we concern ourselves with improving the quality of life for workers? The answer to that is yes. Christians today should follow the example of the abolitionists and work to make this world a more heavenly place. How do you do that? I have no idea. I have ideas. You have ideas. I don't fully know how to do that. Some of that changes, but that is our work. We, we, we have a, a work to make this a more heavenly place. And how we do that matters. Through books and speeches and podcasts and debates and elections, Christians have a role to, to, to voice our biblical worldview to make this world a more heavenly place. Okay, Titus 2, 9 and 10. As Americans, we have to set that context. But Titus 2, 9 and 10 say this. Bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The first admonition and the overarching admonition is employees be submissive. Again, we can't make a, a clean parallel between the bond servants and the American slaves. We also can't make a clean parallel between bond servants in, in us today as employees and workers, okay? But, but, but the task of studying the Scriptures is to understand what it means and, and then try to uh, apply it to our lives. And we do that by, by kind of drawing out these principles. And so this is when the, in the category of work. And, and how do we relate to the people that we work with? So we're going to draw out some principles. Even though it's not clean, you're not really a bondservant. You might feel like it some days. But you're not really a bond servant, but there's principles to pull out. And the principle is be submissive. Employees, be submissive. Now, now submission means embracing your subordinate position and then operating within that position. Therefore, you're, uh, it's about pleasing the ones who are ranked higher than you in your organization. It's acknowledging, okay, you're here in our organization. I'm here and my job is to, is to follow your leadership, to, to, to kind of operate in, in the role that you've given me and, and to take this servant heart approach to my work. Submission is rejecting defiant attitudes. Submission is, is refusing to snap back. It might mean not saying everything that pops into your head. Submission is being willing to do what you're told to do. William Barclay, a an old pastor said that the Christian is never a man who is above taking orders. His Christianity teaches him how to serve. Is that your attitude towards your boss and your coworkers? Do you have a, a servant's attitude? Further, submission includes not having a selfish or, or, a, or a self-absorbed heart. It can't be all about you and be a servant. You can't be submissive and always worried about your own rights. Now, 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 that's a tricky statement, right? Because there are these, these toxic environments, and, and we're not giving an okay for that. However, you aren't submissive if you're always worried about what's best for you. And, and finally, submissive employees, they don't manipulate their employment or their employers. Like, the point of this is just they go into work and they do a good job and they try to help their company turn a profit and they create something good and they do things in righteous ways. They they treat their coworkers and their boss and their client in these ethical ways. They're fair, they're kind, and then they go home with a paycheck that takes care of their sweetie pie and their babies. That's it. 
There's not this trying to flip upside down the world or manipulate all these things or to advance yourself over everybody else or to play these games. That's what it's about. Um, when Paul talks about this, this is something similar to what um, those of you in the military maybe heard this, uh, this category, but uh, guys in the military talk about dynamic subordination. The dynamic subordination is, it, it kind of speaks to a couple of things. Uh, first off, it speaks to how teams are supposed to operate. Dynamic subordination in the military says that, okay, when you're on a team of people, like, like there's, there's ranks and all these sorts of things, but depending on how things are going, it really kind of depends on who's leading out. So, so based upon the problem, the person who is closest to the problem and, and who knows how to, how to fix the problem is most capable of addressing the problem, they become the leader, and then everybody kind of follows them. And then there's another problem that pops over here, and this guy is, is closer to the problem, is better able, uh, capable to address the problem, then everybody kind of shifts, and, and they follow him. That's, that's uh, dynamic subordination. So it talks about how teams are supposed to function. But, but it also talks about how the attitude that you're supposed to take to your work it says this, that listen, the ideal subordinate, he doesn't merely complete the items on his list, like his own to-do list. He doesn't just care about his to-do list, I did my job and then I'm out. Dynamic subordination says that he goes one step further and he tries to think about, okay, how does my work, how does it affect everybody else on the team? How does it affect the people above me and below me? Is my work, is it helping my superior have success? Is the group as a whole, are we all succeeding because of my work? So dynamic subordination is concerned with the, the overall success of the entire group. Listen, the best biblical example of this is Joseph, right? If you think about Joseph in the Old Testament, like Joseph, he, he walked through some awful work experiences, right? Like he's a slave, and he's falsely accused of something. Then he's thrown in jail, then he has these dreams that help somebody else get out of jail, then they forget about him, and then he's stuck in jail even longer. But what you see from the life of Joseph is he doesn't focus himself primarily on, on his own problems. He, he focuses on the bigger issues that people are dealing with. He, he's more concerned with like, how to help people who are about to be starving to death than, than his own plight. Do you have that type of servant's heart in your office? Can I give you a couple of tests here on determining if you're truly submissive? What he does here next is he gives two tests on how to determine if you're truly submissive in your work. Look again at verse 9. He says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So employees be pleasing, not argumentative. That's the first test. Are you well-pleasing? Now, in the ancient world, this had to do with kind of fulfilling your, your civic duty. So if you uh, had a civic duty, if you were positioned somewhere in society and you had a role to play in that society, well-pleasing people fulfilled their civic duty. They, they, they fulfilled the role that they were supposed to play. And it typically had to do with generosity. So, so fast forward to today, maybe you're someone who has a business and out of the profits of your business, not only do you just, does it just bless your family, but you kind of embrace your, your civic role and you say, listen, I'm going to also invest in the charities in my, in my community and I'm going to help my community as well. That, that's what well-pleasing people did in the ancient world. A servant who was well-pleasing, he sought to fulfill his role in a way that made his boss happy. That's what it is. It was pleasing to the boss. So, so if the boss, if she had this vision of how things ought to be done, someone who is well-pleasing, he does it that way. 
If the boss wants to go that direction, then he says, okay, we're going to go that direction. So he fulfills his role on a team, and, and, a, and he fulfills his role in, in a way that pleases the boss. So well-pleasing employees, they work for their bosses uh, to fulfill the larger goals of the group. Now, I've primarily worked in, sounds strange to say it this way, but the industry of ministry, okay? And it's kind of its, its own weird little category. I, your industries are different. So I, I don't fully know what all this looks like in your industries. But, but I know for us, like, like as a staff, our staff tries to work together. So, so our, we, we try to build a culture to where it's not like, okay, this is your area of responsibility, and you just do that and then get out. And this person does this category, and then they get. But we try to say, okay, this person has this category, and she has this event coming up. Okay, well, how can we collectively come around her and help make this event successful? Okay, he he's got this event coming up, and then we kind of come around, we speak, and we encourage, we help, and 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 that's what this is getting at of, of people working together in order to accomplish the broader mission. You're going to be well-pleasing. If you're going to be submissive, if you're truly going to be a servant, that begins in the heart, and it begins with a heart that wants to please God first. William Mount says it this way, if, it, if a slave does what is pleasing to God, the slave will usually be pleasing to the master. That's true, isn't it? Are you seeking to please God with your work? I promise you that if you're trying to be well-pleasing to your boss, or if you're trying to be well-pleasing first to God, in turn, you'll be well-pleasing to your boss. Now, the opposite of well-pleasing is argumentative. Argumentative people are always tearing things down. They're always opposing things. They're always speaking against things. They're always refusing to follow. They don't easily get on board unless it's their idea. Instead of building up, they tear down. Instead of making things easy, they complicate things. Are you argumentative in your office? Do you complicate your boss's life or do you make it easier? Are your coworkers and clients, are they, are they happy to work with you? Again, Joseph is a great example of how to do it right. Like he had, he had poor working conditions, but, but he, was, he was treated unfairly. He was falsely accused. He was falsely imprisoned. He was forgotten. However, he continued to do what was right. He, he kept his eyes on the, on the big problems that people were addressing, trying to find solutions to those big problems. I, I know those are weird categories, but, but, but Joseph, he, he attempted to build up, right? He wasn't just tearing things down. He wasn't only looking at himself. He was trying to make Egypt, all of Egypt, the problems of Egypt, he was trying to make the kingdom better. First Timothy 6, 1 and 2 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So employees, uh, employees uh, build up. Build up, don't tear down. Don't be argumentative, be well-pleasing. The next test, the second test here on if you're truly submissive, employees be faithful, not skimming. Look again at verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that uh, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The ESV uses the phrase not pilfering. Maybe your translation says not stealing. This is holding back for yourself what, what is not yours. You can always justify that, right? But, but, and, and there's scandalous examples of this, like, like embezzling funds or creating some sort of Ponzi scheme. 
However, submissive employees are, are not only honest with funds, but they're, but they're open with funds. In other words, submission includes operating in good faith, is what it says in verse 10. Or, in other words, being utterly faithful or completely faithful or to where people have full confidence in you, full trust in you. Your bosses should be able to trust you. Does your boss trust you? Are you operating in above reproach ways, especially with the money? Uh, don't put yourself in vulnerable situations. Demonstrate accountability. Uh, be transparent. However, in the, in the end, even in difficult situations, operate faithfully with openness and transparency. Uh, again, Joseph is a great example of this. He had great integrity with the money. He, he didn't steal or, or skim from the coffers of Pharaoh. He was trustworthy to the point that even the, the pagan Pharaoh he gave him. Uh, he kind of gave him the keys of the kingdom. The entire fate of the country rested on Joseph's management, and it's because he trusted him. Do your bosses and do your coworkers do they trust you? Well, number five, do all that so that the gospel may be attractive. Friends, I want you to hear today that your work matters. There's purpose to this. I think be submissive is a is a high calling. This is not easy to I think it's very difficult to do. But there's purpose behind it. Look again at verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. A doctrine or adorn is a great word there. It's a great term. And really, especially at Christmas time, as we look around, there's, there's all these things adorning this room. It's, it's celebrating something, but it's making this room more attractive, Right? That's what adorning something does. At, at our house three weeks ago, it looked very different in our living room. Now there's green stuff and there's lights and there's old pictures and there's stockings everywhere. Kristen has, has adorned our house in order to celebrate Christmas. She's made it more attractive in order to celebrate Christmas. That's what adorning is all about. Christian, God is calling you to work in such a way that makes him and his gospel message more attractive. Does that make sense? In other words... You are to be a Jesus ornament in your office. That's what he's calling you to do. That's why, partially why your work matters. Because your work is to adorn God. Your work is to celebrate the gospel. And even if you're a bondservant, someone in an unjust system, God is entrusting you to make the gospel appealing to your master. Even if he takes advantage of you. Even if you're working extra hours that you shouldn't have to work. Even if he's taking advantage of you in some way, God is entrusting you to make the gospel glorious to your boss. The way Joseph worked, it gave credibility to his God. Pharaoh and the other leaders around him, they gave him a hearing about Yahweh and God's covenant promises. And it's because of how Joseph worked. It's because of the integrity that he displayed. It was the management of that country and those funds then gave the gospel credibility to those around him. Does the way in which you work bring God glory? Are you submissive in the office in such a way that people are now open to the gospel? You see that here? This is a parallel text of 1 Peter 2, 18-25. I just want to highlight a couple of the parallels. I mean, Peter says basically the same thing, okay? In 1 Peter 2.18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
Now, the reason why they were to be submissive, according uh, to Peter, was found in verse 19, where he says, you're to be submissive because it's the gracious thing. Now, when I studied that this week, here, here was my instinctive response to hearing that. Who cares about the gracious thing? I don't care about the gracious thing. I don't care about being gracious to that person that's taking advantage of me. Who, who cares about the gracious thing? What Peter then does is he then, he then switches in verse 19 and starts talking about the example of Christ. He says, because that's the gracious thing. And let me give you an example of what this looks like. He starts talking about Jesus, and then he says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he, he did not threaten, but, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you follow Jesus' example? When you do, they can hear Jesus' gospel. Does that make sense? What difficult thing are you dealing with in the office right now? If you follow Jesus' example in dealing with that, they're able to hear Jesus' gospel. And that's where Peter lands in his section. What is the gospel? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, when you're submissive, that's the message they can hear. When you die to yourself, that's the message that they can hear. Can, can I push you a little bit, maybe beyond superficial Christianity. I know we live in North Texas, and there's a lot of superficial Christianity. Can I, can I, I think this passage pushes us a little bit. Can I push you here? What if God has you in that job in order to bear undeserved suffering as a picture of the gospel so that those around you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? That's a different view of work, isn't it? Like, what if he has you there for that reason? Friends, I don't know the context of your work situation. And, and, and I don't know how these admonitions, how, the, how they fully play out in your office or in your industry. But I do know that your work matters. And, and, and I know that you're there to, to play a role, a submissive role to your, authority, to your authorities and your bosses. And, and I know that submission means that you're uh, to cause them to be well-pleased in you. Like they should look at you and not say, oh, she's argumentative. Like, like when your boss evaluates you, that shouldn't, that shouldn't come up. And, and I do know that, that you're to be faithful in your work. You're not to skim money for your own benefit. And I know that all of that, uh, that, that uh, all of that matters because your work is actually a gospel witness to make God more glorious and to proclaim the gospel in your office. That's what I do know. I don't know all the twists and turns of how that plays out in your office. However, I'm confident that your work is suffering at some level. Okay, I'm confident of that. It's not 2,000 years ago bond servant in Crete. Okay, and it's not 1850s slavery in the Americans. It's not. The, I know it's not. I don't want to pretend that it's not. Don't pretend that, that, it's this, that it's parallel to those things. But I do know that work is work. And I do know that, that there's an aspect of suffering in all of your work. But, but hang with me here. I'm confident that submission will lead to undeserved suffering. Okay? I'm confident of that in your eye. I know you're going to be taken advantage of in some way. 
But, but I, but I want to go back to the old American slaves because they, they made a discovery in that suffering that I think is important for us to hear. They saw power in that undeserved suffering. There, there's a pastor named Micah Edmondson, and he's written a book called The Power of Undeserved Suffering. And basically what he does in the book is, is he looks at the theology of Martin Luther King, and he looks at his theology of suffering. And what he found there is what Martin Luther King does is he goes back to his dad's preaching, his grandfather's preaching. He goes back to the spirituals. He goes back all the way to the, to the slaves, and he saw something in that suffering. And what he saw was is that as they looked at their suffering, they saw an, an atoning aspect to their suffering. They were clear it was, it was not just. They were clear it was undeserved, but, but there was power in it because they saw that they were actually ushering in the kingdom for their suffering. People who hated them, people who looked down on them, they were actually in their suffering. They were proclaiming the gospel and glorifying God. It was undeserved, but there, but there was an atoning thing that was happening in there. The slaves then tried adorning the doctrine of God through their suffering. You've all seen the pictures and the videos of the civil rights era. Now listen, those saints being hosed down, chased by police dogs, they, they were doing, as we were taught in school, nonviolent protests, okay, right? And they were doing that in order to, to, to change the public opinion for their cause. But it wasn't manipulative, okay? And it wasn't selfish. It wasn't manipulative because there was something deeper going on there, too, that they didn't teach you in school. There was something theological going on there. There was something very spiritual going on in there. That They were embracing suffering in order to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's what they were doing theologically. Now think about your work life. Is there some undeserved suffering that you need to bear for others? Is there some undeserved suffering that you need to bear to others? And if there is, and I promise you that there is, there's power in that suffering. There's power to change their life in that suffering. That, that's what the slaves discovered. That, that, that's what the Christians and the civil rights movements discovered. How do you need to be submissive even when it's not going your way? I promise you there's something, there's something in there, but there's power there. There's power in there. It's a gospel moment. It's an opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. But brothers and sisters, please hear me in all this. MLK raises that bar. There's purpose in this. There's power in this. Walk in this. But when you hear that call, don't think that God is insensitive to your plight. Don't think that for a second. Okay, don't think that God doesn't care about your pain or he's making light of your pain. He's calling you to something more glorious. He's calling you to purpose in your pain. He's given you purpose in it. He's given you reason for it. Again, the, the old American slaves, they, they give us another example of the pain of submission, but, but they walk through that pain in hope, okay? Listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not laying a theology on them. This is their words, okay? Like they walked through that pain, they submitted, they saw power in the pain, and that gave them hope in the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let me just give you one example, you guys know who've been around. You know I love the spirituals. There's a great old spiritual called Trouble Don't Last Always. Listen to what these folks, these saints sang in the fields. Trouble don't last always. I'm so glad troubles don't last always. 
may not, hear this, may not come when you want him, but he's on time. How about that when you're trapped in slavery? Trouble don't last always. Can I get a witness? It's time in times of trouble found him to be a friend of mine. Trouble don't last always. I'm so glad troubles don't last always. In times when storm clouds rise, he'll be there. Trouble don't last always. Can I get a witness? All your burdens, I know the Lord will, uh, the Lord will you to bear. Trouble don't last always. I'm so glad trouble don't last always. May not come when you want him, but he's on time. Weeping may endure for a night, they sang, but keep the faith, it will be all right, because trouble don't last always. Christian, in your suffering, can you sing that song? (laughs) Your suffering doesn't touch what they suffered. And that's the song that they sang. Friends, that's how you be submissive, but in a way that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. Submit in order to adorn. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that trouble don't last always. Lord, as we remember those saints brutalized, abused, under an an oppressive institution, singing those songs, bloody hands, heartbreak. Lord, we thank you that, that their trouble is over and that they're with you. Lord, some of us walk through trouble. We're in trouble right now. And you're calling us to submit. You're calling us to, to walk faithfully. You're calling us to keep our head down and just do our work. Lord, I pray that we would believe that our trouble don't last always. You're going to make all things right. You're going to make all things just. This world is not our hope. We've got something better coming. In light of eternity, Father, help us to be submissive so that we can adorn. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.